You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 84 for Monday the 9th of October 2017. My guest today is Colin Shelbourne, who is a professional cartoonist from my home county of Cumbria. His work has appeared in Private Eye, Reader's Digest and The Times, and his humorous postcards can be found all over the Lake District. Colin's writing highlights include working with Hunter Davis on The Good Guide to the Lakes, as a researcher for Melvin Brank's The Maid of Buttermere, and co-authoring The Great Drives book with Sterling Moss. His favourite and most personal book is Drawing Cartoons, which arose out of 10 years running cartoon workshops. When Colin and I chatted for the podcast, I began by asking him when he decided that cartooning was going to be more than just a hobby. I think probably when I was about 10 years old, because by that stage I was getting pretty obsessive about it. And uh, I could see that my parents and various relatives were saying, um, he's very keen on doing that, isn't, isn't he? I used to get hold of copies of comics like Eagle or, or uh, Looking Magazine or whatever. And as soon as I got the comic, I was straight down on the floor uh, reading it. And then the next thing I'd do was I would be drawing it. And I think at about that stage, I just thought, something I do has got to have drawing in it and as I as I got a little bit older and I was always drawing cartoons for people at school I think it became apparent that it was the kind of humour and the illustration side that went together that led me towards cartoons. So do you regard yourself as an artist did you go off to art school or anything like that to learn how to do it or are you self-taught? Um, I was pretty much self-taught I suppose uh, I always had in mind that I would end up at art school but um, I think I've since I started secondary school, the five art teachers I had at various schools, only one of them was actually any good and only had him for two years. And um, he encouraged me. He gave me some guidance. But the others were not really very interested in what I was interested in, which was doing the cartooning, the line drawing, the kind of Ronald Searle type pen and ink drawings that I was really fascinated by. And uh, by the time I got to A-level, I actually had one of the art teachers telling me I should give up doing A-level art because I wasn't going to get anywhere with it. So, in fact, that was the very thing that made me carry on doing A-level art and, and do the exam. But, um, uh, no, I decided not to go to art school. I thought I can't stand another three years of being told not to do what I love doing. So I went off at a, a slight tangent and studied psychology at university for three years and then you know, worked my way back to it when I figured nobody was paying any attention. <laughs> so so how do you then, um, you know, because when I, when I was a kid, I, I used to copy comics and things like that, and I, I, was, I was lousy at it, so it went by the wayside. But how do you turn something like that? You know, I think probably most kids probably try and draw their comics or the TV programmes. How do you then turn that into a living? Well, it's, it's interesting. I've done lots of workshops with kids and you get to about, you get the kids that are about 12 or 13 or 14 and they're just beginning to get to the stage of thinking, I can't do this or their critical faculties are kicking in and they think they can't draw well enough. And I always think the people who carry on and make a career of this sort of stuff aren't necessarily the ones that are more talented, but they're the ones who, who are just more obstinate or just more bloody minded about it and think, I don't care. I, I just want to do this. And um, 
that's kind of the approach that, that led me into it. I always knew I wanted to to draw and to write. And um, I just kept doing it, really, and just kept sending stuff off. And then, for instance, the, the job that I've done the longest, uh, which is the front page cartoon for the Westman Gazette newspaper based here in Kendall, um, that really came about because I saw a cartoon in there. They didn't have a cartoonist and they did a one off cartoon. And I looked at it and I thought, that's not very good. So the following week, I went into the editorial office uh, in Kendall and got an appointment to see the editor and said, um, I think you need a cartoonist. And Alan Trenick looked at me and he said, well, funny, we've been thinking the same thing. Would you, do you want to try it for a month? So I tried it and 32 years later, I'm still there. <laughs> that is that is quite a, a stunning run as a cartoonist. I'm just trying to think, you know, the we, we've had cartoonists in the Express. I mean, I, I'm terrible. I can't remember their names. We've had Matt in the Telegraph, I think is my, you know, is one, one yes. of my favourites. And Matt's been at it for years. So you, you must be coming up to a, a, a record. Aren't you with that? That's a long time. Uh, I think I'm getting pretty close to Matt to, I'm not sure whether Matt started just before or just after me, but, um, well, I mean, there's Mac in the Daily Mail at the moment. He's been running for a good 50 years. And I think Giles in the Express ran for a, serious, for a, a similar sort of period. But a lot of cartoonists don't really retire. I, when I did um, my drawing cartoons book, I got to interview a few of them. And... Um, there's an American cartoonist who is a bit of an American Ronald Searle called Arnold Roth. Not many people over here know him, but he used to cartoon for Punch and Playboy, The New Yorker and things like that. And I got to do a Skype interview with him, uh, which was fantastic. And I asked him the question at the end. I said, are you silly question? Are you thinking of retiring? And he just said, Colin, I think we'll let nature take care of that. And that's sort of how a lot of cartoonists operate, I think. So you just carry on until, um, as long as I've still got, for the Gazette particularly, as long as I've still got things to say and as long as I've still got opinions about the area and things I want to bang on about, then um, I hope I'll be allowed to carry on doing it because that sort of platform is a privilege in some ways. You know, you, you've got things to say. You feel strongly about su certain subjects. So being able to put it out there and hopefully get a good response back is a real privilege. And just give us a little insight into that work because um, it, it would it's once a week that that uh, newspaper. Um, that's a lot of cartoons every year. That's a lot of inspiration to have for for those people who who think that writer's block exists. When you're on that kind of deadline, there's no room for writer's block. So how how do you kind of plan? Do you keep some in the pot for a rainy day and things like that? No, I can't really do that. I did think at one stage I'd, I'd be able to do that, but the stories move on too much, and. Um, in some ways, it's harder than the national newspapers because the stories can be so particular and they come. some of the stories come around again and again. When I first started at the Gazette, the editor was saying, can you do more cartoons about the hospital in Kendall? Because we were trying to get it built. Now I'm doing more cartoons about it because we're trying to stop wards getting closed down. So 30 years later, the same stories are kind of cycling around. But the process is um, I don't pay any attention to any of the local stories ahead of time unless I see them on Twitter or social media but I I go in to the newspaper office at two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon and then between two o'clock and five o'clock which is my um, deadline I, I read the stories I'm interested in. I go through the news list I ask for the stories I'm interested in I do usually four or six sketches sometimes I think the maximum I've ever done is 12 and show them to the editor the editor picks which one we're going to go with and then I then colour it up, scan it in, and um, that then goes to the front page. 
sometimes, just occasionally, and has happened a, a bit more regularly in the last couple of years, just past five o'clock, uh, the legal department sees what I've done and says, oh, can't do that. <laughs> and then I get um, called back to, to work up one of the other ones to final artwork, and that goes to print instead. And um, you just touched on it there. You mentioned the word scan. I am going to talk to you about, you know, the, the good old days of, of printing presses and things like that in a, in a little while. You mentioned scan there, but you, you, weren't, you wouldn't have been scanning those in 33 years ago, though, would you? No. In fact, it was interesting then because I used to hand them across to um, uh, one of the uh, chaps who worked in the Gazette. I mean, it was all, all done with metal press in those days. He used to take it off into a little room, take a photo, and then it would go off, and they'd produce a little metal plate um little embossed metal plate which was the reverse of my cartoon and that was the print you know they printed from that i didn't realize at the time they used to melt all these down so i've only actually managed to grab a couple of them for my own archives but uh, that's how it used to be done and um then the computers came in i started working on computers so that i, I would scan my line drawings in and then color them on the computer and if i work from my studio at home I have a Wacom Cintiq where you can actually draw direct onto the screen, a bit like iPads, uh, but with more precision. And uh, I'll draw the cartoons on there and colour them in and then send them off uh, via email straight through to the sub-editors that way. I prefer to be in the office because it's more, it's more immediate and it's more you get to chat to the journalists and sometimes find out some of the background, which might trigger an idea. Um, but uh, I bet I can do it. I've done it from all over. In fact, I think the furthest away... I've done the Westman Gazette cartoon. Uh, was sitting outside a youth hostel in Cape Town. Oh, fantastic! You see, and that's the joy <laughs> of that kind of work, isn't it? It's wonderful. It is. Now, uh, according to your LinkedIn profile, your your official working life began uh, at DC Thompson, um, which is fantastic. I mean, those of us of a certain age will all remember uh, comics produced by DC Thompson. I think they do Ur Willy, which is one of my favourites. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the Beano they did, didn't they? Lots of, lots of favourite comics, I think. And you worked on something called Starblazer. Um, was, that, was that sort of the first official big job that you did with the cartooning? It it was yes I was I was kind of um, trying to get, trying to get work in various various areas and then it wasn't a cartooning gig actually it was a writing writing job uh, they were advertising for writers they would they'd launched this um, like their little pocket commando uh, comic which came out once a month and had I think about forty or eighty pages in it they'd launched Starblazer which was uh, their science fiction one which was based you know based on the the big push for science fiction that followed on from Star Wars. So it was a different story every week, every month, and um, they had a whole range of artists and writers working for them. And I was one of the writers. I would pitch ideas to them, and if they liked it, then they'd commission the script. So you'd have to write it as a almost like a film script, a bit like writing a storyboard. So you'd describe what was going on in the panel, plus the dialogue and the plot and everything. And uh, I, d- I discovered a little while afterwards that, a uh, chap who was regularly doing um, the covers for some of mine was a Spanish uh, artist who went on to do the artwork for Judge Dredd, oh, which, my. of course, became a big thing. Oh, I was—I got the first ever edition of Judge Dredd. I used to love that comic. It yeah. was groundbreaking, wasn't it? Well, I eventually got to meet him because when they did the very first comic art festival in Kendall about four years ago, I got invited along to the uh, evening launch party and had a number of artists there and there was a chap that had illustrated judge dread so i was able to say hello to him and and say you know he illustrated some of my comics back in the 70s so that was fantastic 
So how much of that then was about artwork and how much of it was writing? From my point of view, it was a, when I first got it, I thought, well, I could sketch these out first and then describe them, but that was much too difficult and laborious. And it was, I suppose it's like all, I always think that, that, that good writing, uh, I mean, this wasn't, this was, um, it's not exactly literature, but you, you have to have a picture in your head, which you describe in as simple a way as possible. And then it was handed over to the artist and, and they'd run with it. So, when I got the comics back, they weren't always what I thought of, but, um, you know, that was their interpretation. And as you know yourself, when you're writing a novel or something, that's, that's a similar sort of way. The, the best writing describes what you want to say and gets out of the way quick. Those um, mini comics, though, uh, I used to read, um, I'm just trying to think, uh, a Commando, I think, was one. Was that one of them? Yeah, Commando? That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. I used, I used to love them as a kid, um, but they, they really are um, an art form, I think. You know, they're a particular type of comic come book, I always used to view them as. They're more substantial than a comic. The story was more involved than a comic was. Yeah, well, you had 40 pages to work out the plot and to run it over. You weren't doing a kind of weekly instalment where you had to work, work up to a, um, a deadline or a kind of cliffhanger. But, I mean, the real master of this sort of stuff, the, the, the long-form comic, was Frank Hampson back in the 50s with Eagle, where a weekly down there adventure, I think one of them ran for two years, which was astonishing, and it wouldn't do today, I don't suppose. Although Phoenix Comic, which is a kind of relaunch of a, a very art-based comic, um, they have stories which run for a bit and then are republished as a small book. So it does still happen. I think Dan Dare was resurrected in 2008, wasn't it, if I remember rightly? Uh, there have been a few resurrections, but nothing matches. <laughs> nothing matches the original. <laughs> <laughs> so um, why well, I'm interested then to know how you, you went from working from DC Thompson in, in Dundee. And, and of course, this would have been at the pinnacle of DC Thompson's powers. You know, that, that was that's a real prestigious gig uh, in, in 1979, 1983, when you were yep. working there, isn't it? You know, um, we, we forget it now with, with a printed decline. But that was a fantastic gig. Yeah, they were a big, big company then. I mean, it was all done remotely. It was all, um, I was working freelance for it. Um, and I then moved towards more towards cartooning. I sometimes think I should have pursued that because some of the writers working on Starblazer went to uh, 2000 AD and then went from that. Some of them are writing Hollywood movies now. And I sometimes think, oh, I should have stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, interestingly. But you went to, um, you created Cartoons Publications Limited. And that, that's a bit of a flip, really. So you went from, from sci-fi to, well, the natural environment of, of the Lake District. That, that feels like a flip to me. Well, I was always cartooning. I mean, my real, um, although I love science fiction, um, my real aim was to do uh, cartoons. And after I'd started at the Gazette and I've got a few other jobs starting to happen, um, an old school friend of mine, Robin Sadler, and I were talking about something like this and he was keen to get a business going. I was keen to get some of my cartoons into print. So um, the postcards came out of that really. And they were they were jokes about the area to begin with and then we expanded it. It, it really comes down to what market the publishing company services to what what kind of jokes you can tell and you can you can do um so it went from there and and so we did postcards and then i had the idea for doing a cartoon map of the area called the lap map 
I remember thinking about this and thinking, why isn't there a... I was working part-time for the Lake District National Park in the information centres whilst I was uh, getting my career off the ground. And I kept thinking, why isn't there a small, simple map that just gives you the basics with a bit of fun uh, without these bigger ordnance survey maps or the more useless free ones? I thought, there isn't one. Does that mean it's been tried and failed? So we, we tried it, and I think um, we now do several different areas of lap maps and i think nearly 650,000 copies later we can regard it as being a, a reasonable success i think well that's a stunning number to have knocked up congratulations <laughs> on that that really is an achievement how how are Thank they you. produced uh, though colin did you uh, were you doing some early self publishing or was somebody else publishing these for you no we published them ourselves basically we we formed the cartoons publications company so we could get isbn numbers for them and then um, myself and uh, my partner, Pam Grant, produced the artwork. And uh, then it was a case of taking the artwork to the printer to be scanned and um, sometimes quibbling with the scans. But it was all kind of printed on press for us. And then we took delivery and Robin started selling them. So you're a bit ahead of your time then. I mean, how many people would have been doing things like that then? Because that was genuine entrepreneurship in, in, in the publishing sense. It was self-publishing. I mean, um, Anna at the Society of Authors recently said to me, you've been self-publishing for years. It's just, we didn't call it then. It was just printing stuff and selling it. Um, so in a way, in a way, in a way it was, but I mean, you, we got a lot of, it was a case of finding the printers that were sympathetic to what you were doing and who were willing to, um, in a way, help with what you were doing. And I remember at that stage, we were using a printer called Abacus down at, um, Lowick in the south of Cumbria, who were a fine art printer, but got right behind this. And they were, they were unusual because they would encourage me to go in and actually, as the press was running, they, when, they, when they used to run these presses, it was just the first couple of hundred copies, basically, were just settling it down and getting the colours settled on the, on the print machine. And then they would pull off some of those first proofs and let you look at them and compare it to the artwork and you'd see whether it needed adjusting. So we used to adjust the colours on the press to get it spot on. And that used to make a, I think, made a big difference. A lot of printers, particularly nowadays, are not very keen at all on you doing that because they think it's a waste of time. And as digital printing has got better to some degree, you don't need to do it so much. They can do a proof and if the proof is right, that's okay. That's, that, that will go to press and it will appear like that. But in those days, we used to be, I used to turn up at um, seven o'clock in the morning and be standing alongside the printer for half an hour as we adjusted things and got the colours to exactly what they wanted. And then the press would run and 10,000 copies would run off and you'd know they'd be all be, be accurate. Wow, that's that's an amazing process compared with what you do today. And, and actually, there's quite a lot of wastage in that by the sounds of it. Yeah, there was. I used to be astonished. There'd be this... Um, I remember a time Robin came in with me. You could see this pile of maps sitting there that were just going to be recycled because their colours weren't right. And I could see him thinking, oh, we could sell those. But, uh, of course, you can't because they're not, they're not up to standard and um, you wouldn't want to do it. So 10,000, a print run of 10,000, in terms of a business proposition, that's quite a punt. You, did you had you secured your outlets and your channels for selling those before you did the print run, or was it a punt? No, it was. We'd we'd done a proof. We'd done a um, a kind of uh, a version we could take around and show people. Um, we knew we already knew. We got our prices worked out. We knew what um, uh, they were going to cost, how much they were going to cost to package, and where we were storing them. So we took them around. We knew what our minimum pack size was 
around. And once we had, basically, when we had enough customers for what we thought was going to be half a print run, that's when we decided that's that's it, we're a go. We knew what the minimum print run needed to be in order for it to be economical. And um, that's where we, that's what we went with. We did, a, on a couple of maps, we did a North Wales one and a Devon one, which uh, we got a bit too overconfident with. And I think um, 20-odd years later, we've just about got rid of the last of them. <laughs> but um, in the main, all the others, we've, we've if we do anything new, we always try and restrict the printing to somewhere around about 50% of uh, the printing is 50% of what we're going to sell. So, so we've got an idea of where we're going to, how much we're going to sell. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize in these days with self publishing is you can, you know, once you've written it, you can get it printed. Okay. But then what do you do? You've got to store it. You've got to market it. You've got to sell it. You've got to promote it. And unless you've got that mechanism in, in place, admittedly amazon does some of that for you these days but um unless that mechanism is in place it's a lot harder work than you might anticipate you had isbns on those products so were they taken up by a distributor in the in the, the old-fashioned sense a book distributor who then got them into the shops oh yeah well, we used to sell them into the into the shops and the information centers locally um but because they had the isbn number they'd be um uh, listed by the bookseller and, and on the Nielsen list. And so we'd get uh, bookshops. Normally we used to sell them in packs of uh, 25 or 50. And we get bookshops in random parts of the country saying, can we have two lap maps, please? And you think, why? And then realised it was connected back to the ISBN listing. Uh, but we have um, other distributors in different parts of the country now selling selling the, the maps in those areas. Um, but they sell a lot of other things, whereas we sell only our own products so we tend to sell more of them than, than other people. When did the, the maps then and the postcards, when did that turn into a first book? Well, those, those didn't turn into a book in as much as I didn't do a book with, um, I've never done a book with my own publishing company, really. Uh, but around about the time I started at the Gazette, in fact, slightly before Hunter Davis, the author, was writing a book about uh, wanted to do a good guide to the Lake District, and he needed a researcher. And I applied and got the job, and it actually turned out what he needed was a co-author because um, for each of the chapters in the book, uh, hotels or, or restaurants or whatever, um, he would write the beginning of the chapter, and then I'd carry on and write the rest of it. And it was um, it also tended to split up in as much as when we did the restaurants, he got Miller Howe and I got the fish and chip shops. <laughs> Funny that, that, isn't it? <laughs> on that. But then again, he had the clout. So, but that again was a self-published venture. He, the good guy was published by himself under the name uh, Foster Davis, you know, Margaret Foster, his wife and under Davis. And that was printed with Frank Peters locally. Um, but that was my first, uh, after Starblazer, that was my first book gig. And then that that led into me um, being asked to do a, um, a walking book. And so I did several walking books, and then it progressed from there. So uh, the books that I've done um, have all been done with other people. Up to, you know, I'm planning to change that in the near, near future, but um, that's the way it's worked so far. How then does something like the, the royalties split, uh, I mean, you know, how, how's that managed? Because uh, these books go back a few years uh, and things change, as we all know. Do they sort of come in on automatic? Is it all tied up in contracts and things? Oh, yeah. As soon as you do a book, um, you, have to, you have to get a contract. 
And because um, I was very lucky in the writing or the publishing side of things, I should say, I was being mentored by um, John Wyatt, who some people may know from his walking books. He also used to write under the name John Parker. And he was a member of the Society of Authors. He's, he was at the time chair of the northern section of it, Authors North. So he said, you need to join the Society of Authors and they will vet your contract for you, which is what I did with my first book and I've done ever since. So every time I, I get involved in any kind of publishing contract, first thing I do is send it to the Society and Kate Poole or or um uh, Lisa or whoever there will go through the contract and I'll get back a set of notes saying, no, this is unacceptable, ask for this, do this. And particularly as electronic publishing rights have come in, because um, certainly in the early days, uh, publishers are asking for it without knowing either what they were going to do with it or what a sensible rate was to offer you. They just offer you the 10% you get for a print book, when in actual fact the minimum ought to be about 25%. So the society used to advise on that, and then you'd go backwards and forwards two or three times with the publisher, maybe, and um, you'd agree the contract. And I do remember one publisher, um, when I, was, I did a book with a local Alexander teacher, Penny Ingham, and the first um, publisher we sent it to, send, or sent the synopsis to, sent a contract, and it just demanded all the rights. So I just emailed them and said, thank you for that. Do you by any chance have a professional contract? Whereupon they sent a contract that you'd expect to get from a publisher. So basically they were trying it on. They hadn't bothered to Google me to see that I'd already written about six books. And they just thought they'd try it on. So we decided we weren't going to touch that publisher with a barge pole. And as an author then who's got books that, that you know, go back a few years, um, most of these, or, or sorry, some of these will have gone back to a time before we had Kindles and, you know, Amazon was, was huge on the scene. Um, yeah. how, are you, how are your electronic rights then, you know, tied up in those books? What, what happens? Do they fall between the two stools? Well, some of the, some of the early books are out of print. So the, the electronic rights for those don't really count because um, as soon as they go out of print, you you write to them and say, unless my book comes back in print in six months, I'm going to take the rights back, assuming that's in your contract. You've been sensible enough to put that in your contract. So some of those early books, I've got the rights back. And um, so it's up to me what I do with them next. Either, uh, I mean, one of the books that fell that way was uh, Waterside Walks in the Lake District. And I then took it to another publisher. So they, they went with it and um, the contract includes electronic rights. And I think one of the very early books I did, um, the publisher wanted the electronic rights, but I thought, you don't really know what you're doing. So I just withheld them and I've still got the rights to that, the electronic rights to that book. So I could, in theory, if I wanted to, put it on Kindle myself. Um, they wouldn't, they, I don't think they would put that particular book on, on Kindle, but... Uh, you know, if they're interested, they can always come back to me and we can discuss it. And looking at your Amazon author page, have you pulled in all of your books and, and claimed them as the author? Because you've got quite sort of disparate uh, methods of, of publishing them. Um, I've tried to as much as I can. Uh, Amazon's not entirely reliable about that because um, I do have one or two books out there where they spelt my name with an E at the end. And I'm having trouble getting them to credit those to me instead of some other... Um, Colin Shelbourne who doesn't exist but it's mostly the maps I think but um, yes I've tried to pull them in where I can because I do as, as you say I've worked for a lot of different publishers and one book in particular which sold I think overall about 130,000 copies tended to reprint they would license it to other publishers which was in the contract and was fine 
except occasionally they didn't tell me they'd done that. So it was only when I did a, a Google search or whatever they could, I think it was Alta Vista in those days, I found that somebody else had, had done it. And I would just drop a nice little polite note to the publisher saying, I believe you've licensed it to them. Would you like to pay me the appropriate royalties, please? And also send me the details. So occasionally things like that have occurred in the past, not so much these days. But um, it's always worth as, a, as an author to uh, to check online and see where you're getting up, getting to. And in fact, nowadays, when you discover books gone into electronic print, which they haven't bothered to tell you about. So you just give them a nudge and say, I believe I might be um, due some royalties for this chaps. Um, and then lo and behold, it comes on your next royalty statement. <laughs> A royalty statement. Now that, that sounds very, uh, very traditional. A royalty statement. That sounds fantastic. Is, is oh, they're good. Is it? Yeah. What's What's it like for those? You know, those of us who've never had one, we just get electronic payments from Amazon. That's how it's done. You know, these days. So, so what's a royalty statement like? Is it really like this great document that I always imagine? It's not. It's not a fabulously huge document. No, it's more like an accountant's printout, which is a bit um, discouraging. Also, you get to see. Um, how many copies have gone to a trade price, for example, so you get a reduced royalty on those. Um, but no, it's interesting because it shows you how many copies are selling, where they're selling, and, um, and where you're getting from it. So I can, I can recommend them. You should get them every six months. And um, in, particularly with this Alexander Technique book, which is now called Free Your Back, um, that has um, that's gone into several other languages. So that's that's very interesting when you get a note through to say oh, we've sold a French edition or a, an edition to um, uh, Germany or Croatia. I think it was one of them. Um, the fee the fee will be this, and it will be on your next royalty check. Now that that one uh, looks like it's um, it's got a very modern sort of cover on it. It looks like it's been done uh, what I would call the traditional self publishing way. That it, it's kind of the 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 Kindle version is linked up with the print version. It's got a really cool cover on. It's got look inside and all the things that, that I would expect to see in a book. So what what's the story around that book? How did that get to print and, and get published? Now I've got, I'd um, been having Alexander Technique lessons with uh, Penny Ingham, a local teacher. And we were chatting about different books and she was showing me some of them and they had photographs and things in. And she said, I, I remember remarking, this would be better with cartoons. And she said, yes, I'd like to do an Alexander book, but I wouldn't know how to do it. So I kind of looked at her and I said, do you fancy having a go? So I did the illustrations for it, which are much more illustrations than cartoons. But also um, I I kind of mentored her in, in the process of writing the book because she hadn't written one before. And then we, once we we got so far a, a certain distance into it and we knew where it was going because this was aimed at, at people being able to take this book into the workplace and incorporate the techniques into just things like reaching for a stapler. What's the best Alexander technique way to reach for a stapler? It's not just about how you sit at your computer monitor and it's about how you move about and things like this. So we, we pitched a synopsis to several publishers, including this one that famously sent us a naughty contract. And then when we had a, a contract, we actually had two publishers competing for it, which has um, been rare in my experience. So we went with the one we thought would do the best job with it and who's uh, published it ever since. And in fact, it was originally called The Busybody and um, it's evolved over the years. So it's now in its third title and third version. And... Um, it's still selling well. The, the interesting thing was with this particular version that's out at the moment is they have a, a cover designed by one of their in-house graphic designers who repeated the cover on the back. And when it was being proofed, I said, well, 
wouldn't it be better to have all of the illustrations from inside on the back? And so, oh no, our, our graphic designer is very happy with this. And I thought, yeah, I bet he is. <laughs> I went off for the weekend, grumbling under my breath. And I thought, no, I'm not having this. So I, I put a tweet out, said, look, followers, are you interested in doing a little bit of ex- a little bit of an experiment? If you are, send me a direct message. And I did it on Facebook as well. So all the people that responded, I sent them to the website. And I put up a cover that they'd given me and then a modified one using one of my illustrations i said will you vote on which one you like best and it came out overwhelmingly in favor of the one that had my illustration on it it wasn't just because it was all my chums because it was just you know anyone on twitter that fancy doing it so monday morning i emailed this off to the publisher and said look i've had this and think thought um, all i'm doing really is is letting off steam um, but they came back to me and he said, oh, we would never have thought of doing this. OK, we'll use your illustration. And I thought, oh, that seems so obvious. And I've done it a couple of times now with book covers where I've I've run it past the publisher and said, do you want me to do this? And, and we've kind of crowdsourced the decision. And I think it's a really powerful way of doing this sort of thing. Quite, it's really interesting. Well, well that, I, I'm really interested in that because you, you come from a predominantly uh, – uh, well, I say you don't really come from a traditional publishing background, but you've, you've traditionally published. But you have much of the indie author about you, I think. I mean, that, that crowdsourcing the answer – I mean – you know, indie authors do this all the time with book covers, uh, yeah. as you've done. You know, which is the best book cover? Ask the audience. I call it. You know, get get feedback from real people. Don't just sit in the office, you know, with a group of graphic designers, uh, finger in the wind and hoping you get it yeah. right. Ask people. Yeah, <laughs> well, I did it with the Gazette in a way because we did a book called uh, a collection of my cartoons called What the Hell, Velen, and. Um, it's local cartoons, so I had to try and figure out how, the, how on earth do I do this? Because I could put extracts from the story, so it would explain the cartoons. But if there's going to be 96 pages of cartoons, and there's two a page, so double that, nearly 200 cartoons, how do I make it as, as wide an appeal as possible? So I went through my file of cartoons to begin with and, and made a selection of what I thought would be okay – and then I just gave it to people because we're all printed all photocopies, gave it to people who are friends from outside the area and said, just go through that and put a tick against the ones you find funny, the ones you understand. So that, in a way, was a kind of um, was a very selective crowdsource, but it was an early way of, of doing exactly that. And in fact, if I do another book of cartoons on the same from of Gazette cartoons, I'll be doing the same thing, but I'll be able to use social media. This was in probably the late 80s so uh, uh, social media wasn't exactly a big thing at that stage <laughs> no, not really. because i was on the web fairly early on to have a website i remember at society of authors meetings in the old days it was put your hand up if you got a website and there would be two or three hands in the room and then it's gone from put your hands up if you're on social media and now it's put your hands up if you're self-publishing or if you're publishing your backlist um so because I had a website fairly early on, um, I regarded the internet as, as being part of the medium, part of the, the process of, of publishing and, and getting, getting artwork. I used to send artwork to commissioning editors in London uh, via email. And I remember talking to one once and he said, oh, I much prefer getting stuff from you to getting some stuff from somebody in London. He said, if a cartoonist in London sends me a, a topical cartoon. He has to send it around by courier. I have to go down to the desk to sign it in, bring it up in the lift, get it scanned, and then put in the magazine. It says, yours come in by email, and it just goes straight in. I thought, well, yay, being in the Lake District isn't a disadvantage after all. No, a competitive edge, but I bet in those days of dial-up, those files would have taken a little while to download with their art files. 
Well, they could do, but the other thing about cartoons is you can make them very simple. You know, very simple line drawing with block colors. So in the early days, cartoons had a huge advantage because you could make the file size smaller and you could make them fit the resolution of the monitors that were around at the time. You mentioned earlier that you'd um, done the book with Hunter Davis, although it, that, that the book was not didn't use Hunter's uh, name. It used a, a mixture of his wife's name and his name. Um, but you've also uh, worked with Melvin Bragg and Sterling Moss on books. So you've got mm-hmm. three you know, mega names there, really, uh, in terms of shifting books. I'm just wondering whether, um, you know, does that help to shift books? Has that been useful for you? Uh, yes, I think so. I think so. It never, it never harms in the same way that people will send a proof out to um, a well-known author and ask them for a quote which they can use on the cover. In fact, uh, my publisher is prodding me to do this very thing because I discovered via Twitter that the poet Pam Ayers is an aspiring cartoonist and she bought my Drawing Cartoons book. And she just sent me a direct message and saying, I've got your book, I really love it, um, I'm trying to draw cows. So we ended up having a, a, a Twitter drawing lesson between us. So uh, at the end of it, I said, will you give me a quote to put on the book? So working with other people like that um, is always good. The, the, the uh, Melvin Bragg job was, as a researcher, so... He didn't exactly credit me, but he did work me in as a character in the book, which I'm not entirely sure I was keen on, but never mind. Um, The Sterling Moss book was uh, using his name as a banner. I wrote most of the book, but he came up and gave, did the, it was great drives in the Lakes and Dales. So he came up and did the drives and I did all the research and writing. And then I interviewed him for his impressions of the area and things like that. The main thing about that was he did the drives in uh, considerably less time than I did them. (laughs) <laughs> but he also had the excitement of uh, he got a puncture on hard knot as he was going over towards the uh, the west coast and apparently um, he managed to limp down into Esdale on a Sunday and they went and fetched the garage owner out of the pub to come and mend his uh, puncture and it took them a while to do it because the garage owner didn't believe that it was actually Sterling Moss outside who was uh, wanting his puncture <laughs> fix and, and for people who don't know the Lake District just think very very rural very, very isolated. Oh, hard not. Yeah, I mean, it's one in four roads and uh, out on the West Coast, say, miles from anywhere. Yes, we, we, we do rural in, in the Lake District, don't we, in Cumbria. Very, very rural. Yes, we do. <laughs> now, um, the other thing you mentioned there, which I, I found very interesting, is um, because you, you mix in different circles to me, and, and you mentioned there about self-publishing backlists. And, and this is a really interesting topic yes. because a lot of authors now, um, they haven't sold on the electronic rights. They're seeing what's happening in self-publishing, and they're seeing the opportunity there. And um, and backlists are a huge opportunity. If you've done the work, you've just got to republish it in a different format and make more money from it, which makes perfect sense. It's an asset exactly. in that respect. So where where do you sit with this? Are you, are you planning to do it? Are you doing it? Oh, I'm definitely definitely planning to do it. Uh, I have a, um, a friend and colleague uh, who writes under the name Lillian Harry. She occasionally uses a real name, uh, Donna Baker. Uh, well worth following on Twitter if anybody uh, can go and find her. But she's been writing for ooh, 30 years, and she's written a lot of family sagas and uh, historical novels. But she's had a lot of books which um, have been in print and then gone out of print. And in conjunction with her agent, actually, who suggested this, they said, well, you should get some of these books back. All the rights are reverted to you, and we should try publishing them electronically, see what happens. So that's what she's doing. So... Um, uh, Donna Blesser is is well up with the kind of current technology and is is ahead of the game. So she's she's reprinting her books, and I've got uh, a couple in particular which I'd like to get back out into print. And 
one of them, they're both walking books. One of them, I think, it's kind of did very well. That's the one that sold 130,000 and did very well in its day. It was a kind of coffee table book. I'm beginning to think the market's changed a little bit and also think people say, oh, there's too many walking guides to an area. But if you're clever, there's always something you can do that's a bit different, either adding your own personality to it or finding another kind of twist to it. So I'm just beginning to get an idea of how I can do that. So um, I've got one or two things I'm working on, which uh, I will see how they go and then doing work for other people. And then I'll move the same approach across to my own books and um, see what I can do to get them get them out into print again. I think it makes an interesting point, this, though, is, is that uh, when, when early authors are struggling, and a lot of people listen to this podcast are writing uh, first books, trying to get that first book written. And, mm. uh, and, and, you know, I'm very, very new to it, too. And one of the things I'm always saying is that, you know, once you've written this book, it becomes an asset in your life, and it can find many forms in the future. So, I don't know, it might become some kind of virtual reality guide in the future. But once you've done the work, you could use it in... in many ways now you've been at this game long enough presumably to see that taking shape in front of your eyes oh yeah exactly yeah so i mean um just with i mean it's the same happens with artwork just because you've done something for one particular thing doesn't mean that that illustration can't then go on and have a life somewhere else so one of the important things to do which society of authors would always encourage you to do is to not give away rights not give away stuff that you don't need to when you sign a publishing contract make sure you re- you either retain the things you you can or make sure there are opt-out clauses for the future so if the publisher is not doing anything with it you get it back it becomes more tricky now because if you say you know you're going to reclaim the rights when the book goes out of print well with electronic publishing and particularly with print on demand how do you define what's out of print if they can print one every six months does that mean it's still in print and they they sit on it because um publishers are funny creatures if they're not doing anything with your with your book it doesn't mean to say they want to let it go they want to kind of hang on to it in case there's some use they can make of it in the future but you may be better placed or you might be more nimble in the marketing or the kind of promotion of it to to do more with it and there's um a couple of people i talked to in the society who've said well you know these days you do your book the publisher takes an interest in it for a month and then moves on to the next book so you're actually responsible for doing a lot of the promotion of it on social media sometimes it even says that in your contract and in some cases publishers are going to um, festivals and exhibitions in some cases even bookshops encouraging them to take the book and then you start thinking do i need the publisher you know what what's what are they adding to it so you've got to look at what if they're in london and they're selling in a london market and you're stuck in a lake district maybe that that's a good idea but if your market is a lake district Maybe not. Maybe you can do a better job of it yourself because you understand the market in the area better than they would. Or you can find a local publisher that could do the job for you if you don't want to do it yourself. But still, always check the contract to get somebody to look over it. And uh, as, as I said a couple of times, the Society of Authors is one of the two main author organizations in the country. And uh, the Society of Authors is more geared towards book publishing and uh, that type of publishing and part of the membership every year is they will always vet your contracts in addition to all the advice they give you and send you in the magazines and things you can always send a contract to them and they'll vet it and they will they will also say at what point to say okay that's the best deal we're going to get go with it so particularly if you don't have an agent um, they're absolutely invaluable i think 
Let's talk about the Society of Authors a little bit more, because you very kindly have made an introduction for me to them, and I'm doing my first uh, paid speaking gig for them in November. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I will be. I will be there. Oh, yes. will you? All right. Well, yeah. all right. You I'm, in, can... I'm introducing you. I think. How oh, are you? All right. I was going to say, <laughs> if it goes badly, you can show me where the fire exit is, and we could do a runner through Manchester. So <laughs> you can help me with my escape route. But <laughs> so it's a completely different environment for me because you know, I'm used to talking to people who want to know about just self-publishing. But I, I think. Um, you know, all publishers, all uh, writers can learn something from each other. It's always it's always fascinating to hear people's journeys. Um, now, I, I decided, I thought, well, if I'm talking for the Society of Authors, I ought to do the decent thing and join and, and give it a try for a year. Um, and and as a as an indie author, because you know I'm completely indie, it, it feels quite a traditional thing. Now, you've already given me a really good benefit of joining the Society of Authors for the contracts and that that. Uh, well, years of knowledge, isn't it, for the Society of Authors? That years of it experience is. with contracts. What? What you've been with them for what, a long time? What do you get from being in the Society of Authors? Well, um, I mean, they have events where and conferences where you can go, which not only a bit like the one in November, which is what is organised by Authors North, where every everyone every author from that's a member from Birmingham upwards can go to these. It's one every six months plus a summer social event. And um, you not only get whatever the subject is of the day and the speakers and lecturers that are talking to you, but you get the chance to meet other authors, which particularly these days when things are so much in flux is invaluable because you get to find out what you might find another author is getting a totally different contract to you from the same publisher or from a similar publisher or they found something to do that you might not know. For instance, uh, a couple of years ago, we had something about self-publishing and there was a, a woman there who had been at it for a while now, and she was quite a way ahead of the rest of us in as much as she knew that when she self-published in America, she had to go and get a totally different tax regime in order to get the money back from that, which none of us knew about. Um, so you get that sort of benefit from it. You get also the advice, and they do a lot of publications advising on different aspects of, of publishing. They've got a broadcast group. They cover a lot of different types of of writing from broadcasting to education publishing and uh, they're very good at keeping up with the local the, the recent developments including doing a lot of um pressuring on what they consider to be the minimum minimum terms for for authors there are also some side benefits as um particularly there's an organization called the authors licensing and copyright society which if you've had stuff published even if it's only uh, if it's in magazines or in educational uh, publishing, they will collate the details of where your work has been republished and get royalties back from it for you. To join the ALCS normally is about £40 a year, but if you're a member of the society, it's part of the membership of the society. And um, I've, been, I've found that um, uh, the um, teachers in Norway who are busy photocopying some of my drawings have paid for my membership of the Society of Authors for the last few years. So um, there's all sorts of hidden benefits as well as the, uh, the more public ones. That's very interesting. Now, I've, I've noticed with, those, um, with a lot of uh, more traditional groups, um, some of them are a little bit um, looking down their nose at the authors. Uh, now, from what you've said, it sounds like the Society of Authors is quite receptive to the idea of self-publishing. Doesn't see it as don't see self-publishers as second-class citizens. No, they they had a, a thing at one point that you had to have a couple of published books in order to um, become a member, and then it was pointed out that um, 
you know, a lot of the, lot of uh, their existing members were self-publishing their, their back catalogue, and that meant that new new publishers would be coming along. For instance, um, uh, there's a friend of mine, Marianne Wheeligan in Edinburgh, who published her first book herself because she almost got a contract, but not quite with a traditional publisher, but she set up her own little publishing company. And she and her husband are now published uh, two or three of her books, but they're also publishing books by other people. So, you know, she's hardly a self-publisher anymore. But the society has always regarded this kind of thing as being of interest. And as long as you're not doing vanity publishing where you're paying somebody just to um, print the thing and take money off you and do nothing with it, um, then they're always keen to uh, to take an interest in what you're doing. And self-published authors are definitely on their on their radar, so they will help you to. Um, they'll offer advice. So there is a, a self-publishing leaflet that they do booklet, and um, when you come along to some of the meetings, it just helps. I imagine as an independent publisher, you're not only not dealing with kind of the direct publishing professionals, if you like, got a lot to learn. So just meeting with other authors who've done some of this stuff, or even if they've gone the traditional publishing route, you learn stuff all the time. I always say that it doesn't matter what the subject of the day is, come along anyway, because you'll meet all these different authors, and they're all in different genres. Like uh, they could be working in, in novels, in fantasy, or they could be writing very technical manuals for, I don't know, Pearson or somebody like that. And um, But they've all got shared experience. And sometimes you'll learn something from one which applies to you, which you wouldn't otherwise have, have got that information. So it's being it's it's a way of becoming part of the community of authors. And they have groups around the country as well as in London. They have groups on specific um, topics like they have a very active broadcast group, which is also interesting to, to go along to. So um, I can thoroughly recommend being a member. Well, I shall be trying it out for myself in, in November. And uh, just incidentally, while we're talking about it, the criteria for joining as a self-published author is that you must have sold over 300 print copies or 500 ebooks in 12 months, which when I was checking out the criteria, I thought, oh, I have done that. So I'll join and we'll give that a chance for you. So um, it, it has a threshold, obviously, but um, yeah. but, but but not an impossible threshold. That's a, a reasonable threshold, I think. They, they want people who are serious about um, the, the writing part of their careers, whether it's a full-time job or whether it's – but they want people who are serious authors, basically serious writers who um, you know, are, are doing all the things necessary to get the book out there. One of the things I haven't uh, asked you yet, and I don't think you've mentioned it, is, is are you uh, agented and have you ever been agented? Because It, sound, it sounds from, from our conversation that you've done most of this off your own bat. Um, yeah, I have really. I've not. I've approached agents a couple of times in the past, but not got anywhere. And then, um, to be honest, it's been as hard to get an agent. It's, as hard, it's probably harder to get an agent than it is to get a publisher. Um, and I've never really, um, not really felt the need for it because I've been getting on with my own thing. I can kind of see the need for it in some ways, and particularly if you concentrate on traditional publishing, and in some ways it works very well. Um, so I'm not saying I won't get one if I find the right one. Um, they've got to take an interest in you. You've got to be generating enough income for them to take a cut and it, for it to be of interest. And in many ways, my work is a little dis disparate. You know, there's different things going on in different areas, so it's a bit difficult for an agent to focus in on exactly where they get the money from, I guess. But um, um, it's not something I won't do out of principle but I, I think it's worth doing if if you think it's going to be 
a value to what you do, particularly if you've got a lot of, you think there's potential for your work to sell overseas by traditional publishers, then negotiating those overseas rights is, I think, an agent could be invaluable for that sort of thing. One of your uh, many claims to fame is that you were Britain's first radio cartoonist. And, and that just takes some figuring out, really. <laughs> How did that work? Uh, well, this this was um, this was entirely the fault of uh, another friend of mine, Rob McLaughlin, the um, Granada journalist and broadcaster, who was uh, starting a Sunday morning show for City Talk Radio in Liverpool. And he wanted to make it a proper magazine programme, a lot of politics. He does a, a political interview programme on Granada, on ITV, and... He wanted to make it a, a, a Sunday newspaper of the air. And he said, well, one of the things that Sunday newspapers have is a cartoon. So he rang me up and said, do you fancy drawing cartoons on the radio? So being freelance, I just said yes. And um, so the way it worked was that six o'clock every morning, I would charge down into Bowness, bang on the door of the one news agent that was willing to open for me at that time and get the Sunday newspapers, hurtle back up home again and uh, scan through them by seven o'clock when he would ring me up. And we'd chat on air, live on air, at the beginning of the programme and discuss what stories are out there uh, in the papers. And then I would go away. And during the course of the three-hour programme, a bit like the newspaper, I would do draw ideas, put them up on my website so that he and the listeners could go and look at them. And then he and his studio guests and listeners would vote which one became the final artwork, which I'd colour up in the final hour of the programme, and then would go up on the City Talk website. Um, so it did operate um, very similar to the Gazette in some ways, except there was this added ingredient of being live on air every time he came back to t- ask me how I was getting on, which was particularly interesting if I was stuck. <laughs> and um, I think the worst one was... Uh, it was very stimulating to do and good fun and people from all over the country via internet were, were tuning into it and uh, kind of chatting to me on, on Twitter and things. I think the most difficult one was he started off the programme by talking about something in the news about football and about soap operas, two subjects of which I'm proud to say I know absolutely nothing. So I had to divert him onto real news as quickly as possible, otherwise we're going to have a very stilted conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same with football. I wouldn't know where to start, really, you know, so uh, I know the feeling. Um, I know that you've written 12 books. Is it still 12 books? So that, that's what it, the, it the is, website yes. says. Yeah, it's still 12 yep. books. Uh, these are often fluid when I talk to authors, that's all. Um, but you've got a, a, a favourite of your books, and that's your Drawing Cartoons book. What, what, what's so personal about that? Of 12 books, why does that resonate with you so much? Well, that, that's the one which gives me an opportunity to distill all the things I've learned as a cartoonist. But also, it came out of the fact that uh, when I wrote it, I'd been probably for about 15 years running workshops for both adults and children, both residential ones and uh, day workshops. So a lot of what is in the book has come out of the workshops that I've run. And I was running it, running a workshop for um, in Great Missenden and uh, Crowwood Publishers, who publish it, spotted me on the list and got in touch and said, we're doing some art books. Do you fancy doing one on cartoons? So again, as being freelance, I said yes. And then looked around and thought, well, more established cartoonists who work for Punch, and although I've worked for Private Eye, I'm not a name in Private Eye, they've done books on this. So what, what makes me think I can do it that improves on what they do? And then I thought, well, actually, what, what makes me think I can do it is the fact that I've had the benefit of all these people who I've worked with to try and 
teach a little bit of cartooning to and all the questions they've thrown at me. So basically I've had, um, you know, a couple of hundred people collaborating with me over the years on how to run a workshop. And that's what went into the book. And also it was very personal in as much as I able to give my view of, of drawing and cartooning, talk about some of my favorite cartoonists. Um, I wasn't allowed to be rude about the art teachers who were rubbish art teachers, but I was able to praise the one who was good. And, um, for the last chapter, I said to the publisher, I think it would give it a bit more general appeal if I interviewed some cartoonists. And they said, yes, good idea. It was really just a ruse on my part. So I get, got to interview uh, Mac in the Daily Mail and Matt in the Telegraph, who's a very entertaining chap to talk to, and um, just discover some of the kind of similarities. It's, it's interesting that, for instance, Matt was saying that they have this big open plan office and he's got a prime desk which looks out over the over london and i said have you given that they've given you that desk because it's got such a brilliant view he said no not really he said when i draw the faces i tend to pull the expression that i'm that i'm drawing and he said if i'm facing the journalists it tends to frighten them <laughs> and i thought oh good it's not just me that does that every cartoonist pulls those faces as you're drawing them because you kind of draw i think cartoonists more than perhaps traditional artists draw by feel rather than what they see in some ways. And um, that was just a joy interviewing all those, all those different cartoonists. And so that became, that became a very personal book. And one, I kind of, I tiptoed around that book for a year before I got stuck into it. And then it all came out in a rush. And um, I'm, I'm very proud of that one. I'm very pleased with it. And now you have an additional endorsement from Pam Ayres as well, which is fantastic. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I grew up with Pam Ayres. That's very <laughs> prestigious. I think having Pam Ayres, uh, you know, getting excited about the book. And, and actually you're the perfect combination because, uh, you know, I can remember looking at her poetry books as, as a kid and um, they used to have lovely cartoons in those, didn't they? They're, it's perfect for cartooning uh, Pam's poems. Well, Quite possibly she did them herself. She's not. She's a. She's a good artist. You know, doing this. Uh, I've done a few workshops on on Twitter um, in the past, and doing this one with her was uh, realised. Well, there's actually not a lot I can teach her. All I all I could do was say, you know, just relax, just have fun, and and just go with it, um, and um, you'll be fine. What so I've done myself out of a job, really, because I really like to illustrate her books. But there you go. <laughs> That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Lovely gig, that yeah. one. Um, one of the things that, that I, I seem to be asking a, a lot of the people that I'm talking to on this podcast is, is you know, are you an entrepreneur um, as well as a, an author cartoonist? And you've been doing this for a lot of years now, and you seem to have survived mainly off, off your wits and your own efforts. So how much are you entrepreneur? Well, that's the interesting thing, because when I started doing this, I always said that I'd be quite happy to do this for somebody else if they would pay me, but nobody will. So I'll have to run my own business. And I think as as an author and as an illustrator, whether you do either of them or whether you work as both, it takes a long time for you to realize that part of being an author is actually running a business. And not only do you have your accounts to do and things like that, but you've got to do all the other things involved in running a business like promotion, websites, social media and things. And there is an argument for if you if you need to, then get other people in to help you with these things and don't be too shy about it because the more time you spend trying to do the things you're not good at, the less time you spend on the things you are good at, which hopefully will ultimately um, earn you money. So I do think that people have to, if they're writing their own books, particularly if they're self-publishing, they do have to regard themselves as um, as a business. And in some ways, it's an argument for having a pseudonym because – one of the things I've found hardest is when you're promoting yourself, 
it's hard to separate your own ego from the product you're selling as, you know, the product Colin Shelbourne, the illustrator or the author. And um, I think in some ways having a pseudonym would help that because you've got this separate thing to yourself, which some ways it's easier to to boast about and to push and to to sell to people. I can't believe that we've been talking for, for nearly an hour now. We're, we're virtually out of time. I just must ask you before we finish, uh, um, where are the best places to find out about you uh, on the web? Well, you can. Uh, the best place is, is my website, which is uh, shellborn.com. That's a little tricky to spell, so I've also got um, radiocartoonist.com, which points towards it, which um, I went and grabbed when poor old Rob was trying to just spell my name every time on the, uh, on the radio. So radiocartoonist.com has uh, most of my work on it. The, the website's being populated at the moment because um, some kind of chap called Paul T kept banging on about how good web WordPress was. So I've rebuilt the website in WordPress. I've not that. finished it yet. <laughs> Radiocartoonist.com will give you the links to my social media profiles on, on the professional page on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. I use Twitter quite a lot because I'm more comfortable with that. And uh, being a cartoonist, 140 characters is about right length for a caption. So it's a, it's a good way of, um, of doing it. If I, if I, wander across to other things like uh, Instagram, which people keep telling me I ought to be on, uh, then there'll be, that'll all be linked on my website as well. So that's, that is the prime place to go. And then if you search for me on Amazon, you'll pull up, um, you'll pull up my books there. And um, that'll also, there's a page there uh, which lists all my books. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.